If your patient asked your advice about their becoming a living donor, what would you tell them? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Robert Brown, Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation, Columbia University Medical Center, and Chief Division of Abdominal Organ Transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Today we are discussing living donors. Dr. Brown, what exactly is a living donor? A living donor is really just a healthy individual who decides they want to donate part of their liver to one of their loved ones or close friends in order to facilitate an earlier transplant procedure. Now, what exactly is the difference between a living donor and someone who donates their liver after death? Well, the majority of liver transplants in the United States are done with deceased donors. These are usually donors who suffered some type of brain injury that leaves them brain dead. We call these standard or brain death donors. A certain proportion of donors in the United States are what we call donation after cardiac death. These are donors that have not suffered brain death, but in whom a decision is made to withdraw life support. In that situation, once cardiac death has been achieved, if the family consents, those organs can be harvested. These are a minority of transplants in the United States. The final group are living donors. Now, obviously, for liver transplantation, unlike kidney transplant where you can donate one of two kidneys, here you have to donate one half of the liver, and that liver will regenerate up to full size in both the donor and the recipient. But what is the difference with respect to the recipient, whether they receive a liver from a deceased patient versus a living donor? That's a great question. It was believed for a long time that the living donor organ, because it was a half of a liver, would be inferior to a full-size deceased donor organ. Fortunately, that hasn't turned out to be the case. Though it is a smaller organ, it is from a very healthy, well-screened individual, usually younger, and it's obtained right before the time of transplantation. So the amount of trauma that occurs to the organ from removal of, from the body, organ preservation, and what we call cold ischemia time, or the time it spends on ice without any blood perfusion, is markedly less. Finally, the recipient for a living donor liver transplant is able to be optimized and is generally in a healthier condition than those that reach the top of the waiting list because the top of the waiting list in the United States requires that you be rather ill. So when we look at survival from the time of transplant and compare living donors at experience centers to deceased donor transplant, the survival is equivalent. And actually, if you look from the time of listing, the living donors do better because they have decreased mortality on the waiting list. Now, you mentioned that in a living donor for liver transplantation, they give 50% of the liver. What's the minimum amount that a living donor can give of their liver and have it successful for the recipient? 
It depends on the size of the donor and of the recipient. When we transplant babies, we generally use the left lateral segment, or 20% of the adult liver mass from the parent, usually who serves as the donor, to the child. And that's more than actually adequate liver mass for the child. When you do adults, the standard operation between like-sized adults has actually been to use the right lobe of the liver. This is actually the larger lobe of the liver and is actually usually about 55, occasionally 60% of the total liver volume. The recipient actually needs little more liver volume than the donor does. This initially seems like a bit of a paradox, but when you think about how the operation is performed, it becomes obvious. In the donor, the left lobe of the liver is never excluded from the circulation. It's always getting good perfusion. It maintains within the body. It's their own liver, and they are healthy. So they can tolerate losing 55 to 60% of their liver mass. As a matter of fact, if you needed to do an operation on a healthy individual, you can probably remove 70 to 75% of their liver. The recipient needs somewhat more liver mass because it is going to get an ischemic injury from being removed. It is not their own, and they are more ill. They needed a liver transplant. So they generally get as we would say when we were kids, the bigger half. But we find that that is adequate. If the donor is larger than the recipient, you can do a left lobe liver transplant where they get you know, 40 to 45%, though that is much less common in the United States. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Robert Brown, Associate Professor of Medicine and Surgery at the Center for Liver Disease and Transplantation at Columbia University Medical Center and Chief, Division of Abdominal Organ Transplantation at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Today we are discussing living donors. Dr. Brown, you mentioned that If you give a recipient 50% of your liver as a living donor, both the recipient and the donor's liver will regenerate to 100%? It is amazing, the liver's ability to regenerate. Not only will they get back to 100%, they'll do it relatively quickly. How quickly? Generally within about a four- to six-week interval, they'll be close to full liver mass. It actually occurs more rapidly in the donor because they've had a larger hepatic resection than in the recipient. But we see in the donor generally a return to normal liver function within about four to six weeks, though full volumetric recovery may take a little longer. And this process occurs without any noticeable permanent damage to the liver, though obviously our long-term follow-up of these donors is incomplete at the current time. So it's not just hypertrophy and increased function, it's actually a significant increase in cellular numbers. Yes. The liver will actually regenerate completely with recapitulation of normal structure. Interestingly, when you put a liver into a baby that's too big, it will shrink through apoptosis to meet the demands. And the thought is that this is driven 
by the needs for nutrient processing. And if there's too much liver, it shrinks to fit. And if there's too little, it grows to meet the needs. So obviously, as it gets closer to optimal size, that process slows. Let's review for a second. What are the major reasons why people need liver transplants? Majority of patients uh, need liver transplantation in the United States for viral hepatitis, predominantly hepatitis C. That's about half the transplants in the United States. The second leading diagnosis would be alcohol-related liver disease. This would be followed by uh, hepatitis B and the autoimmune and liver diseases, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, primary biliary cirrhosis, and primary sclerosing cholangitis. A small number of patients need transplants for rare genetic diseases. And finally, we have a large group of patients who undergo transplant for so-called cryptogenic cirrhosis, cirrhosis that we don't know the etiology of. It's believed that many of these cases have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or fatty liver disease related to obesity, diabetes, and hyperlipidemia. Given the increase in the rate of obesity in the United States, it's expected that this group of patients will be growing in number over the coming decade. And what about for hepatomas? Hepatocellular carcinoma complicating a chronic liver disease is anywhere between 10 and 20 percent of our transplant volume. And this is something that has evolved considerably over the period of time that I've been in transplantation. Initially, transplantation was used largely for tumors that could not be resected because the outcome of transplantation was too poor to consider it for anyone who wasn't at death's door, and recurrence rates were quite high. Eventually, this led to restricting transplant to patients with cancer until it was found that patients who had small tumors did quite well with very low recurrence rates. Now we give added priority to patients who have localized tumors, generally defined at the current time as a single tumor less than five centimeters or three tumors less than three centimeters each. Within those guidelines, recurrence rates of tumor after transplant have been less than 10%. Some have pushed for broadening those guidelines or using neoadjuvant therapy to downsize the tumors and then transplant. But certainly with limited stage uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, the results are quite good. Now, this process of liver transplantation clearly is very involved and has a certain degree of risk. Is there any trepidation in doing transplantation in diseases that are related to alcohol-induced diseases? Well, this is something that I think provides an ethical quandary, and I believe a lot of it is due to social stigma. Personally, I view alcoholism as a disease, and if that disease can be treated and controlled, we should treat it the same as we would treat any disease. As you know, much of our diseases in the United States have a component which is Uh self-induced, whether that is due to smoking, diet, obesity. If we took all of those things out of our practice, we wouldn't have a lot to do. (laughs) So I view that the major issue here is whether recidivism from alcohol is a substantial risk. But how do you determine that? 
all patients undergoing transplantation are generally required to have undergone a period of abstinence. Most programs in the country will not transplant someone who has been drinking acutely or do transplants for acute alcoholic hepatitis. So in general, as a guideline, a six-month rule has been used. Six months of abstinence, as well as participation in some type of structured rehabilitation program. I want to thank Dr. Robert Brown, who has been our guest. We have been discussing living organ donors. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.